Hello, I'm Shane Hartsfield, pastor of Beaver Baptist Church. Thank you for listening to our weekly podcast. If you have any questions about what it means to follow Christ or questions about our church, direct you to our website, beaverbaptist.com, for our contact information. Weekly, we study exegetically through books of the Bible. And now, join us as we dive into today's passage. April 1st, 1989, all seemed well. Highway 51 as cars crossed the Hatchie River Bridge going northbound into Lauderdale County. Cars had been crossing the bridge all day. It seemed sturdy and structurally sound, but about 8.15 in the evening, an 85-foot section of the bridge over the Hatchie River fell about 20 feet into the rain-swollen river. Four passenger cars and one semi plunged into the river and all eight passengers lost their lives. On the surface, all seemed well. The bridge seemed fine. It looked fine, but actually under the water, erosion from the riverbed had caused the columns to give way. And we often do that too, too, don't we? We look outwardly at things, at people and circumstances, situations, and things appear to be fine, but maybe inwardly things aren't all that they should be. See, structural damage couldn't be seen in that bridge. And as a result, lives were tragically lost. I remember that day vividly. Sometimes consequential things can't be seen, things that are important. That was true in the Hatchie River Bridge, and that's true of people, as we'll see in our text today. I want to kind of give you a Set the context, if you will. I know some of you are visiting with you with us, and we're glad you're here. We've been praying this week that you'd be blessed. But there's a need for a king in Israel. We're looking at First and Second Samuel. We've been walking through the book, and I love just walking through books of the Bible. That's our that's our habit here at Beaver. And by the time we finish Second Samuel, we're going to know these books. But Samuel, the prophet of God, who delivered God's message to Israel has been rejected. So the Lord's been rejected as king, and Samuel the prophet's been rejected, and Israel, God's chosen people, they wanted to be like the neighboring nations. They don't want to be set apart anymore. They want to be just like the other nations. They wanted a great figure of a man to lead them and to protect them and to fight their battles for them. And so the Lord gave them this fine specimen of a man in Saul. He's a head taller than all other men. He looks like a king that could have led any other nation in, the, in, in Palestine of that day. And the Lord was even gracious enough, Hunter, to give him the spirit. And upon receiving the spirit of God, he defeated the Ammonites. And it was a great victory, but from that point on, Mark, things went south in Saul's life and for the nation of Israel. Saul, he doesn't obey the Lord as he impatiently offers a sacrifice instead of waiting on Samuel. He's not a priest. He's a king. In the next fight with the Philistines, Saul has his soldiers refrain from eating. And so they're fighting all day long, but they don't have anything to eat. And so they, they win a victory, but the victory is not as great as it could have been because his soldiers are famished because of Saul's foolish vow. In chapter 15, Saul is told to defeat the Amalekites and to devote to destruction all that they have. And Chris taught this last week. 
But Saul, he spared Agag, their king, and all the best of the livestock. And, and Saul had a good excuse. Well, we want to offer those things to the Lord as a sacrifice. But God said through the prophet Samuel, Saul, Saul you have rejected my word, and so I have rejected you as king. We learned last week to obey is better than sacrifice, didn't we? Samuel told Saul that God had rejected him, and Samuel told Saul, so have I. I won't go with you any longer. You're on your own. So he had Agag, the Amalekite king, brought to him, and Samuel hacked Agag to pieces in obedience to the Lord. Now let's look at chapter 15, verse 34 and 35 real quickly. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So in the first five verses of chapter 15, Samuel's grieving, and the Lord told him to get up and to go to Bethlehem to anoint a new king. And for Samuel, he's afraid of what Saul might do, and that speaks a lot about Saul, doesn't it? Saul's changed since the day he was anointed, hasn't he? You remember the boy, the young man, Samuel, who hid among the baggage at his inauguration? You remember the boy who after traveling, looking for this wayward donkey, these wayward donkeys of his father, the Lord providentially brought him to Samuel, and Samuel anointed him and told him he was going to be the, the first king of Israel. And, and, and as, as Saul goes back home, he didn't tell his family anything that happened. He was very humble. But Saul is different now. He's glory hungry. He still looks the part, a head taller, right? handsome, but he grieved the Lord and he grieved Samuel as well. So Samuel obeyed the Lord and went to offer a sacrifice and invited Jesse to the meal. I want to kind of take just a moment. Some of us here, we've lost loved ones in the recently and we're just thinking about this and I think this may be helpful. When we're grieving, sometimes we're tempted, I think, to turn we, we grieve for a while, and sometimes we, we have a tendency to turn inward. And when we're counseling people, we want to be really sensitive to that because grief is, is a heavy, weighty thing. So we want to be sensitive as we counsel folks with the Word of God. But I just want to encourage you, as we notice Samuel's grieving, but what did Saul tell him to do? He told him to, to, to do something, right? Sometimes maybe the, the, the help we need and we're in our grief, is to, to do something, to turn outward and do something, right? Instead of wallowing in sometimes self-pity, I think sometimes we have a tendency to do that, but we need to do something maybe. Maybe it's a remedy for grief is action, right? Turning outward instead of inward. just want to kind of mention that. But word was out, verse 4. Samuel had put Agag to death. And so what happens when he gets to Bethlehem? Are the people excited? Look at verse 4. Samuel did what the Lord commanded. He came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came. They meet him what? Excited? No. Trembling. Why are they trembling? Well, word to God now. <laughs> it put Agag to death. But... but 
But not just because of that, because when a prophet of God came to town, oftentimes he came with a word, speaking a word of judgment. So they're afraid. A couple of things I want to point out to us in their time remaining. The first thing is don't focus on inconsequential things. I think that's the first thing we need to remember, and that's the main point of our text this morning. Don't focus on inconsequential things. David Felker, he's a, an elder at Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. He tells a story about playing football in high school in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And he said we, one of our rivals was coached by a man who was ingenious at causing the defense to focus on things that weren't important. Bear with me, ladies, if you're not a football fan. But what he would do, he would have a wide receiver maybe that would go in motion. And upon snapping the ball, he would fake the handoff to the receiver in motion, and then they would hand the ball off to the man going up the middle. A lot of misdirection. And this coach was, was well-known for his offensive play calling. And, and every year he was top ten in the nation, and then he moved on to college ball, and he became a college coach. And the coach was Gus Malzahn at Auburn. But he said it was amazing how he got you to focus on things that didn't matter, right? And then he would hit you on the backside or hit you where you were weakest. Israel had focused on unimportant things, inconsequential things when it came to Saul. He looked like a king, right? But his heart was not a heart after God. And in verse 6, Samuel's at the sacrifice with Jesse. Jesse's boys arrived and Samuel saw Eliab and Samuel knew this is the one. God said he's going to anoint one of Jesse's boys, and here comes Eliab. I mean, he was the, he was the one. He knew it. He was impressive. Sharp-looking fella. Big stature. But the Lord tells him, no, he's mistaken. Don't make superficial judgments. So Jesse had Abinadab, and then Shammah passed by, and the same answer from God, not this one, not this one, not this one. Seven of his sons passed by, and none of them qualify. Why? Look at verse 7, main point of our text. Man looks at the outward, but God looks at the heart. I think that's helpful for us today, isn't it? I mean, think about looking at someone's heart, well, how can we do that? That's something only God can do. Only God knows each and every heart. In fact, we don't even know our own hearts, right? Jeremiah 17, 9. What does the Scripture say? That the heart is deceitful of all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We, can't even, we don't even understand our own hearts. We're left someone else's. We can't see those things. That's something God does. He sees the heart. We can't cover. We can't hide. We can't fake it, right? Also, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment for the time before the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation for God. I believe that Paul is speaking about the, the judgment of God. But what does God do? God reveals the motive, the motives of our hearts, our true hearts. And we don't know our own hearts and we don't know other people's hearts, but the but the Lord does. But I think in our text today, I think we need to, one thing we can learn is we don't need to focus on things that are superficial. We, we battle, I think we battle that, even at our church, I think, and I've seen this happen. We have people visit our church coming in and out the doors all the time, and maybe we'll, we have a, a couple who comes in and they're 
really sharply dressed, and you can tell they're kind of well-to-do. And it, it's funny how sometimes people, we tend to flock to people more like that. Because we're looking at the outside, we're thinking, well, they're somebody, they're a person of stature, a person of wealth. And I've, I've even seen that in our own church. Just kind of a, a, a little mild rebuke here for our church. I've seen that happen. But we don't need to look at the outward appearance. We need to look at the heart. Now, there's a balance there, isn't it? I mean, I go about once a month to poo, and I say, poo, make me handsome. Right? And she cuts my hair, right? And so there's a balance there, right? But we have to be real careful looking at the outward appearance. I mean, think about how many plastic surgeries there are in America. I looked that up as doing this surgery. There's a lot. There's a lot going on, right? Because this is really important to us. I think we have to be careful and be careful about that. Because what's important is the heart. As Blake mentioned, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And man, we can have a really good looking outside, but our inside looks janky and terrible. That doesn't honor the Lord. I think about singles too, you know. Um, you know, you don't want to just look at outward appearance. That all that handsomeness that you see in your in your future husband won't do you any good if he's not faithful. And men, the, that figure that you're so attracted to in your future wife won't do you any good if you try to lead your family in a biblical way, but your bride won't submit to you and follow you. This doesn't matter, right? It's about the heart. So we need to. Pay attention to that. And not all, Samuel, we see Samuel was lured by unimportant characteristics in Eliab and his brothers. But if you notice, Jesse and the rest of David's family was too. They made these superficial judgments because verse 11 and 12, where is David? I mean, think about it. The prophet of God, I mean, in the Old Testament, how did God speak? He spoke through the prophets. The prophet of God is coming to town. He has a word from the Lord. And David's not even invited. I mean, they didn't even think that, that it was worthwhile to bring their youngest son, David, to the party. So it seems that Jesse and his family, they, they would be real quick to say, oh, oh, probably Eliab, right? Yeah, No, it wasn't Eliab. It was David that God chose and anoint, chose for Samuel to anoint that day. And it's interesting, if, if our culture was... If we went by our culture and followed our culture, they would have us all to be Saul's instead of David's, wouldn't they? Because Saul was had this stature. He looked like the Clint Walker, right? The chiseled physique, and he was handsome, and he was strong, and he was, had all these what appeared to be good qualities. Yeah, so I think we need to be careful about focusing too much on inconsequential things, the outer appearance. Second thing, real quickly, is that God often chose the ordinary, didn't he? In verse 11, David was just an ordinary boy. I want you to look at that with me real quickly. I think I need to point something out to us. He asked, Samuel asked, Jesse, are all your sons here? And of course he says, no, my youngest, but he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel says, well, bring him here. In verse 12, it says he was ruddy and he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Now, I want to take a break there for a second and, and explain something. Now, we see that and we think, oh, it, it's, it's a, it is a... Um, a compliment he's playing to David. I don't really think that's what's happening here in the text. I don't think that's what's happening. 
I think what he's saying is, is he's, he's, by describing David this way, he's showing how he's, he's still a young little boy. He's just a kid. You know, it's kind of like this. We got a new puppy. And puppies are just cute. You know? They're just cute. They're just little. It don't matter what kind of breed they are or whatever. They're just cute. And I think that's what's going on with David. There's, he's ruddy. He has beautiful eyes. He's handsome. Yeah, he's, he's just a small little boy compared to Saul. I think that's what's going on here. I don't think he's trying to compliment David. I think he's doing the opposite. He's just an ordinary little boy. I mean, he's just cute, you know. Puppies are cute, right? He's ordinary looking. In fact, David is just an ordinary boy. He's a shepherd. He's doing the minuscule task of watching the sheep, right? And we see God doing this over and over in Scripture, don't we? Choosing those just ordinary people. I mean, think about Moses. Moses was an ordinary dude. Think about Joseph. I mean, Joseph was, he's an ex-con, right, that ends up leading the nation of Egypt. But he's just ordinary. David is just ordinary. But God sees his heart, and he knew David loved him. So God chooses ordinary things, ordinary people. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll, just, we'll put it up on the screen for you, verse 26 through 29. For consider your calling, brothers, Paul, speaking to the believers in Corinth. Not many of you are wise according to your worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. You're not a position. You're not really intelligent. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chooses the ordinary and the weak because in the end, who gets the glory for accomplishing great things? God. Mission accomplished, right? Yeah. God runs the world in such a way that who gets the glory? He does. Yeah, isn't it great? It's wonderful, and he gets the glory. So he chooses the ordinary. Now, aren't you glad? Because I'm just an ordinary fella, and most of us, we're just ordinary people. Good people. On the verge, some of you are right on the edge of being extraordinary, but by and large, we're just ordinary folk. Yeah. But I'm glad that God chooses ordinary people. Thirdly, real quickly, notice the contrast between David, who has the spirit, and Saul without him. I mean, this book has been a book of contrast, hasn't it? You remember... We talked about Hannah. Hannah, she's barren, right? It's contrasted with the fertility of Penina. And what about Samuel? He's much different than Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, right? Samuel and Eli, they're different. Samuel's hearing from the Lord, right? Eli's blind. The God of Israel is juxtaposed to Dagon, the Philistine idol, as Dagon falls before the Ark of the Covenant several times. And here, look at verse 13 and 14, this contrast. The Spirit departed from Saul, but rushed upon David. Look at verse 13. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Now, the Spirit of God had came upon Saul in chapter 11, verse 6, and he was given victory over the Ammonites. But the Spirit upon Paul, uh, Saul was temporary, and the, and the Spirit upon David is from now on, right? From that day forward. Yeah. So God, what he does, he takes the ordinary and he, the weak and the plain, he pours his power upon them, and so God gets the glory. Just real quickly, do you have the Spirit of God in you this morning? Just a question. What about you? Do you have the Spirit of the Lord empowering you today? 
And lastly, notice the providence of the Lord in verse 14 through 23. We don't have time to read that. We're going to close it down here pretty quickly. But what, what happens is there's a, it says a, a harmful spirit comes from the Lord to make Saul miserable. It's, it's, it's from the Lord. You may ask the question, well, what was that spirit like? Was it a demon? Was it just an angel of judgment? Not real sure. But it was from the Lord, and it made Saul miserable. And so what Saul did, it's an amazing story. What Saul did is, is his servants, they actually mentioned to him, hey, when this, this spirit comes upon you and makes you so miserable, maybe we could find somebody to play some music, play the lyre, and bring, that may help you. He's like, that's a good idea. Do you know anybody? Do you know anybody? David just being anointed the new king. And his servants say, yeah, we do. We know this boy named David, a son of Jesse. How about we get him and bring him here and give him a try? Saul, with his own free will, says, bring him on. Let's try it. And guess what? It worked. As this spirit from the Lord making Saul miserable, David plays the lyre and it comforts him. And it says Saul loves David. He loved him. Look at verse 23. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hands. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. You see the province of the Lord there? God, using the free will of man to direct their steps and accomplish his purposes. Isn't that amazing? God, and he's going to accomplish his will. Isn't it amazing how God is directing steps of men to accomplish all that he wants to accomplish. And, you know, if it wasn't for God intervening here, we would have Saul Act 2. Saul Act 1 didn't go well. If God didn't intervene, we would have Saul Act 2 because they were, any of Jesse's sons would have been anointed king before David. But we see the providence of the Lord bring about his purposes. Just by way of application, let's, let's close this thing uh, down and, and our time is up. But You know, only the Lord can see a man's heart. But shouldn't we, shouldn't we also place more importance on the heart than outward appearance, those superficial things that aren't as important? We need to try to see as God sees what counts to God is what should be significance to us. So let's be careful not to place too much significance on inconsequential things. And secondly, David was this Old Testament Israelite king given the spirit, right, in order to do the Lord's work. And as I ask you, do you have the spirit in you? As new covenant believers, we're given the spirit as we repent and believe. So I want to ask you have you, had, have you, have you had godly sorrow? Because the Bible says godly sorrow leads to repentance, right? And repentance and faith, they're like the, one, the two sides of one coin, right? So have, we, have you had godly sorrow over your sin? Have you turned from your sin, trusting Christ's work on the cross as your own? Have you trusted Christ's work on the cross as your own? Have you trusted that Jesus rose from the dead so you could be justified? And right now, are you trusting? You say, yeah, I've done that. But I'm not really, I can't really say that I'm trusting that now. No, it does, that's not how 
that's not what the Bible teaches. We, we trust the Lord for our salvation, and we continue to trust Him for our salvation, right? So have you, have you repented, and have you trusted Christ today, and do you have the Spirit of God? The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, when we, when we have godly sorrow, we repent, and we trust Christ's work on the cross. He gives us His Holy Spirit. And what does that Holy Spirit do? It empowers us. Empowers us to do His will. And the person who's filled with the Spirit doing the Lord's will gives Him glory. And that's our goal, right? Yeah, is that true for you? Can you say that you've had godly sorrow in your life, that you've repented, you've trusted Christ, and you now have the Spirit of God living in you? If not, I want to encourage you today to repent. Maybe today, for the first time, you've had, you're going to have godly sorrow. And you are overwhelmed because of your sin and your guilt and your shame. And I want to encourage you to repent, to turn from your sin, living for yourself. And trust Christ's work on the cross, the work he did 2,000 years ago as your own. I want to encourage you to do that. And lastly, just by way of application, God is providentially directing the steps of men and women, boys and girls, to accomplish his will. That means us. He's directing our lives and doing a work. Do you recognize that? And the reason I bring that up is because that, that, that encourages me. I mean, think about the times where you've, you've been praying for this person. You've been praying for maybe a, a classmate or a friend or a neighbor and or someone you haven't seen in a while, maybe a family member, and then you run into them at, at Walmart or Kroger. The slow leak you have in your tire that's just aggravating, you keep having to air up, and finally you go to the garage to get it repaired, and you have this incredible conversation with the mechanic there. You see how the Lord directing our steps and bringing about his will and accomplishing all these wonderful things. I mean, for some of you, you've, had, you've shared the gospel this week and you've been praying for those opportunities and God gives you those opportunities. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't it encourage you? I think we need to recognize God, his sovereignty and him providentially leading us. That encourages me. And what it does, it, asks, it, wants, it causes me to want to ask him, hey, Lord, please direct me to people that you want me to love on and share and minister to this week. So that's how we'll close our time. It's encouraging you to ask the Lord to direct your steps, that you would have opportunities to love people and share the gospel. And maybe it's, maybe it's a relationship issue that you've uh, had, a, had a fractured relationship and you've been praying for this person and wanting to make things right, wanting for things to be cleared up, wanting for things to be better, and you're going to run into this person real soon. God's grace to you. May we leave today ready to obey his word and give him glory as the church should. Thank you for tuning in today. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast if this message has been helpful to you. Again, if you have any questions, go to our website for our contact information and we'll see you next time.